So thankful to be here with you this morning. Um, corporate worship is a, a gift that we often take for granted, but there are so many people around this world that for one reason or another do not get to experience this freely and openly and we get to do so. I hope that we are always thankful for this opportunity. Um, Last week we started our expositional series in the book of Romans. We covered chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 and um, this morning we will cover chapter 1 verses 8 through 17. Um, My Bible actually has this kind of marked off into sections and this is the second section and I'm not intentionally kind of going by those but um, that's just kind of how it flows together. Um, We talked about last week this obedience through faith and what exactly that means and how that's kind of a, a foreign concept to us. We don't usually obey through faith. We obey by something that is manifested through the flesh. Um. But this week, we're gonna, we're, Paul is going to kind of build upon that. He's going to explain this faith, okay? And so um, as deep as last week was, it was only the greeting. We're actually getting into the meat of the letter now. And so um, it's going to continue to be um, very intentional. What Paul says is very intentional. It's very processual. It, it follows a certain pattern. So we want to look at that. Um, If you were here last week and just heard me talk about we're going to cover a couple of verses today, you're probably thinking, wow, we're only doing, you know, seven, eight, nine verses at a time. Uh, Romans has 16 chapters. This is going to take a while. And that's absolutely true. I'm glad you noticed that because what we don't want to do is speed through Scripture as to not get what God is trying to tell us. If this is truly revealing his character to us, what we need to do is be very intentional in how we approach it, be very focused, cover every word, word by word, verse by verse. Um, Secondly, I'm I'm just kind of getting some things set up before I start. Um, Last week we talked about our five S's, our, our our themes that Paul keeps up with, and we calls it our five. We called it our, our five S's: sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. I encourage you, if you're taking notes, uh, write that at the top of your page or somewhere you're going to see it. And I encourage you to do that every Sunday because you will see these themes everywhere you look in the Book of Romans. They're very important. Thirdly. If you're not someone who asks a lot of questions, if you just read what you read or you hear what you hear and then that's kind of it, you don't really think more about it, you're doing yourself a disservice. Asking questions is a vital part of being able to understand what is being talked about and what is happening. And so if you're sitting in a chair and you don't have a Bible in front of you, or you don't at least have a Bible app open, something that's in your hands, again, you are doing yourself a disservice because you should not take my word for anything. I'm a sinful human just as any of you. You need to check every word that I say with scripture and what it says because I can be wrong. Please do not take my word. When you see something in scripture, Ask questions. Why is this this way? Who is this talking to? 
Because Paul, the, the logic that Paul follows to understand where he's going, you need to ask questions to get to the next point. To get from A to B, you need to ask, why is A this way? Or what is A for? Okay? Ask yourself questions. Read it for yourself. Take no man's word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these verses. I'm going to pray over it, specifically these verses, and then we're going to get into it. Romans chapter one, verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the life and the hope that they bring. I pray that you will guard my heart, that I will honor these words this morning. I pray that you will open all of our hearts, that we will be receptive to hear, that the Holy Spirit will guide us so that we will not hear what our, our sinful desires want us to hear, but rather we will hear about a gospel that is totally fixated upon you, that through this word we will become less selfish and more infatuated with you, that our eyes will be turned away from ourselves and onto you who are able to keep us and hold us until the day of completion. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to come together to study it and learn about you. In your name we pray, amen. So chapter one, verse eight, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now we talked last week about the situation of the city of Rome um, the, the growing immorality that was taking place there and, and especially um, in terms of sexual immorality. I mean, the, the city of Rome had normalized sexual practices that even our secular culture today would kind of take a step back from and go, uh, no, that, that's, we're not doing that, right? Um, so that kind of, I don't wanna say leaves that to your imagination because we don't need to imagine that. I'm just telling you, it was not good. It was worse than any modern city we have today, if you could believe that. And the Christians in Rome were growing even amongst this, this secular wickedness that was taking place. And that was becoming an extreme irritation and agitation to Caesar and to the, the Roman officials because uh, this religious rule that they had where you could kind of worship whoever you wanted as long as you also worship Caesar. And the Christians were really the only group of people who refused to do that. And so they were 
sort of facing persecution and that persecution was growing, but even as the persecution was growing, they were growing in number and, and intensity and love for this new gospel. And so it was almost like the persecution wasn't slowing them down, it was fueling them. And so Paul is hearing about this from the different places that he's been and he is thanking them for their steadfastness in this faith that they hold. And then we get to verse nine and we're gonna do verses nine and 10 together because they're one sentence that has been split into two verses. It says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now we see that Paul is urgent to make it to Rome, but it, it's, Rome doesn't necessarily um, fit Paul's mold of the places that he goes. Um, Paul originally saw was from Tarsus, which is in Galatia. It was the, the city of Tarsus was uh, very close to Antioch, which is, Antioch is actually the easternmost, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, the easternmost very large city in the Roman Empire. It was kind of on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And the city of Rome, even though it's considered the center of all of Roman culture and society, was actually on the western edge. So these two cities would have been about a thousand miles apart, which today doesn't seem like much. We can hop on a plane and get there in a short time. But um, that was a, a couple weeks travel in that day. That was a long travel. But Paul is really trying to get there. And, and we also see through Paul's other letters that he is most interested in going and, and planting and establishing churches preaching the gospel, planning and establishing churches with these believers. But we see here that the church in Rome is already established and is flourishing. So it begs the question of why Paul is so eager to make it to Rome. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to go be with them so that he can serve them. He can impart to them whatever spiritual gifts he has, he can use it in a way that is glorifying to the Lord in their service. Is that the reason we walk in here on Sundays? Or do we walk in here wanting to make sure we're filled up? Not that that's bad, but do we walk in here looking for this really good experience that's gonna motivate us, it's gonna kinda recharge us a little bit and we're gonna walk out of here pumped and ready to go. Paul is wanting to serve. See, when we walk in here, kind of wanting to fill ourselves up, when we walk in here and the expectation is to get something out of us for us, that means the gospel that we're coming in here for is centered around us. It's about we, not he. Paul was not like that. He wants to come and serve them. But what he says in verse 12 is very encouraging to me. He says, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So this is a beautiful picture of this system that God has set in place where when believers come together and serve with each other, as they empty themselves, they are being filled back up. 
It's this beautiful process where God doesn't leave us empty. He gave us each other that our faith may encourage us, that we may be mutually encouraged and we are filled back up. If you're like me, you spend a lot of days admittedly overwhelmed and and some days even just discouraged and, and downcast. But that's part of the reason God gave us each other. If you are not meeting with a group of believers regularly, look, we would love for you to be here regularly, but if God is calling you to somewhere else, by all means, don't stay here if you're not supposed to be. But if you're not meeting with a group of believers regularly, you are putting yourself in a very dangerous and compromised situation. God gave us each other for a purpose and a reason. And that is very clear here. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, We see, he says here, in order that I may reap some harvest. Obviously, I'm sure you've picked up, that's that's talking about the, the collection of souls for Christ, converting souls to a relationship with Christ. But I, I kind of want you to read what is said in, in John uh, chapter four, verses 34 through 38. And it's so interesting kind of how Jesus sets this up. He says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He makes this distinguishing factor between those who sow and those who reap. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul even distinguishes between different types of people who sow. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God grew it. And he's, he's talking about the church. There's different responsibilities that are held here. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. I want you to think about this situation. How many of you have tried to get into a Jesus gospel church, etc., conversation with somebody and they quickly and maybe even rudely shut it down? They reject you. And so your response from that point is to get, I don't know if I can say this, kind of butt hurt. And you know, you're, you're kind of offended. And so you just keep to yourself. You're far less likely to continue to spread that gospel to people now. Because you think that in one moment, you have to plant, water, grow, and reap. As if in a real world situation, you put a seed in the ground and you wake up the next morning and the plant's ready to go. 
Again, that's a gospel idea. That's a gospel mindset that's based on us. And, and more practically, we should notice that Paul is usually a sower. He's the one going around. He's planting and establishing these churches. But now he says he wants to come to Rome to, to reap a harvest. Paul understands, as we should, that all of these roles are equally important and it takes different types of people. And sometimes you may be called to do one that you're not particularly used to. We, we can't get in this idea that we're stuck to one thing and that's all we can do. In other words, we don't have any excuse to keep this gospel that we have to ourselves. We have no excuse. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So this, this word or this phrase under obligation in the Greek, and I'll say this wrong, is ophiletes, okay? O-P-H-E-I-L-E-T-E-S, okay? It means in debt. So what he's actually saying is I am indebted to carry forth this gospel and to serve both Greek and barbarians, both wise and foolish. So again, he's saying there's no excuse because what, what he's saying is that he, he can't pick and choose now who he gives this gospel. He, he can't take someone that looks really good and they, they're smart and they look like they're really gonna get it and, and only serve and, and carry the gospel to them, but then he's ignoring everyone else. He's ignoring the people that don't really fit the mold. No excuse. He's obliged to all, or he, he's obligated to all rather. And when it says to Greeks and to barbarians, earlier translations simply said foreigners. They didn't say barbarians, they just said foreigners. And when it's talking about wise and foolish, it's talking about what society would have considered the upper class and the lower class. So you can't preach to Caesar and then find the merchant on the street and ignore him. When God gives you an opportunity, you don't get to choose it, you act upon it. It's that simple. I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's simple. That's what he's saying. But is he in debt to them to do this? Absolutely not. Chapter one, verse one, we went over last week. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We talked about how that was kind of like a bond servant. And we explained what that meant, how that was a willing servanthood. And we will see that in the next verse, verse 15. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, uh, other translations say ready instead of eager. That, that's a good word to use. The Greek word I'll also say this wrong, is prothemon, okay? And it's used two other times in the New Testament in Matthew 26, 41 and Mark 14, 38. These are the famous passages you'll all know where it says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, okay? You can get what that means. The spirit wants to do these things. The spirit it desires to do these things, but the flesh is weak. So that's another way of thinking of this. He, when he says he's eager, he's, he's ready, he's willing, he desires to go, he's excited. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
So what we're seeing is the contrast between Paul and most of us, myself included. We will not even preach the gospel to people living under our own roof or to those we see at work or at school every day or to our neighbors or, or other family members because of this fear of rejection. So we're kind of, we're almost, I mean, let's be real, we're scared. Yet Paul is eager to go across the world to preach the gospel to a people that he doesn't even know. So my question at this point would be, what's the difference between myself and Paul? It's a question we have to ask if we're going to understand. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we act how we act, where we're scared and we avoid it and we keep it to ourselves, that means we're ashamed of the gospel. Or another, a couple of other words we could use is we're disgraced by the gospel or we're, we feel dishonored by the gospel. But to feel dishonored wouldn't that mean that at least in your mind, if I'm to feel dishonored, that means I think I'm the one worthy of honor? I can't feel dishonored if I'm not expecting honor. Doesn't work that way. Paul is not ashamed and we are. And so the next question should be, what about this gospel that Paul believes is so strong that he's not ashamed to go across the world and preach to a people he doesn't know. Again, what's the difference here? What are we missing? And then he explains this gospel that he's not ashamed of. He explains what that is and what that does. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's not ashamed for two reasons, okay? One is, is it, it's here, it, it's not directly here. You can't just read it, but it's, it's in this book. It's in the breath of the words that Paul writes and speaks in all of his letters. And I'll make this argument to you and, and just let you kind of mull over this as, as time goes on. The first reason this was different for Paul was that this was not just a set of ideas. This was so real. We treat all of this like it's just systematic theology and systematic theology is a great thing. It helps us in many ways. But if that's as far as it goes, it will never fulfill its purpose because the gospel was real. It is real, it happened. It was as real to Paul as you getting out of bed this morning is to you. You haven't had to think about or, or try to systematically process whether or not you actually got out of bed this morning. You know you did because you're here and your bed's not here, it's at home. So you know you got out of bed. If you're watching at home from your bed, use another analogy. But you know you got out of bed. This was as real to Paul as the flesh that covered his bones. 
It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just words on a paper. The second reason is here, clearly. And that is that he understood the only part of anything that he did that was left up to him was his obedience. We talked last week and, and we, we, we talked about how before we come to know Christ, we are dead in our sin, meaning all we can do is sin. We can try to do the right thing, but at the end of the day, it's still sin because Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But when we come to have a relationship with Christ, we now have a choice whether we will obey or disobey. And Paul understands that. He understands that he can either obey or disobey. But even if he obeys, he is only obeying what God has sent him to respond to. He's not choosing whether he's sowing or, or harvesting. He's not choosing who he preaches the gospel to and who he avoids. He's not choosing his opportunities and he can't make that plant grow. He can only obey what he's told to do and that's it. That's the only thing that's up to him. Which is, is why this is, is such a wonderful thing because it's not left up to us. The gospel through only faith, not good works, not, not being a good, great Christian person, through only faith reveals to us God's righteousness and his character so that our faith may continue to grow and therefore our obedience in faith will continue to grow. But as long as we're relying on us, we will always fall short every time. As long as it's up to us, something will be screwed up. We can't do it. We weren't made to do it. But we, you know, don't think that way. We, we still think it's about us. I've lost my pages here. So, I want to be very careful about how I say this because I, I, I've been honest with y'all up here about my struggle specifically with depression amongst other things. And... Um, I've actually, within the last five or six months, um, it's elevated to the point I'm having to get professional help for that. That's something that I'm, I need help dealing with, okay? So what I'm not trying to tell you is that if you, if you have some type of chemical imbalance in your body and in your mind, you need to just have faith and suck it up and get over it. I don't want you to get that. But I also believe that we have to stop making excuses for ourselves and sometimes the line between the two is very thin. Even in depression, anxiety, stress, anything else, th these changes that Kenny talked about. Do you know why fear, anger, anxiousness, doubt, temptation run your life? Because in those moments, you are not living by faith and I am not living by faith. It doesn't mean if we live by faith constantly, we'll never struggle. Don't, don't listen to, to what I'm saying. But here's what Paul understood. You know, in Matthew 17, 20, 
That's the, the passage again, most of you will all know it too. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, if even you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, move and it would move. He's not saying that because we have some type of superhero power in us where we can do anything we want. You know, people like to say, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. And that means that they're gonna become professional athletes and make millions of dollars. That's not the point of that passage or this passage. It's not about us. What he's, he's trying to get across is that when you fully understand that your greatest threat and my greatest threat is our sin and its consequences, and then as a Christian, you fully understand that that threat has been taken away from us and replaced with the greatest hope that we can have, and that is salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. When you fully understand that and then believe it just a little bit, no circumstance or situation that you can ever go through can have a hold on you, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul understood it. You know, there are, we talked last week about the Christians in Rome and the persecution that they faced and they weren't necessarily facing it to a terrible extent at this time, but even just not even 10 years after this letter was written, um, Emperor Nero came into power and that was when the persecution really started. And we talked about how one of the things that would happen is that they would take the Christians and they would tie them on stakes. And then he would put them on the outside of his garden and cover them in wax. And then in the evening, when it started getting dark, they would be set on fire. And because of the wax, they would burn over a course of several hours and it would be like lamps in his garden. There are true accounts, even from people who were servants inside the home of Caesar, that they could overhear these burning Christians singing psalms and shouting out in praise and worship to Jesus as their flesh was being burned off of their bones. Do we have faith like that? Because as long as it's dependent upon us, we won't. As long as it's dependent upon us, the first sign of rejection, the first sign of hardship, we will take off and run. But when we understand what Paul is trying to say, that it's not up to us, that we can't fix ourselves and clean ourselves up, we'll really start to see who God is more clearly. So what I would like for you to do, you can do this at your seat. You can come to this altar. Um, actually, I would encourage you to do whatever is more uncomfortable to you just because I think that's good to do sometimes. I encourage you to pray that God will remove the parts of your heart that try to tell you it's up to you. I encourage you to pray 
that God will remove the parts of your heart that tell you you have to get a little bit cleaned up before you run to him. Because I can guarantee you over the course of history, there's been millions of people who have died saying tomorrow I'll get it together. Stop trying to get it together. Have faith in the God who began the work in you and will bring it to the day of completion. And he doesn't need your help. He will do it in spite of you. Father, thank you for your words, for your hope, for taking the burden and the responsibility out of our hands. We know that your will will be done no matter what we do, you will still accomplish your plans. Thank you for your son who made all of this possible. He took the threat of sin away from us and replaced it with a hope that is everlasting and can never be lost. It can never slip out of our grip because it is not our grip that is holding it, it is yours. I pray that you will continue to open our hearts to you, that we will not be hardened we will come to love you and see you more clearly. We will come to see you as infinitely more valuable than anything else. I pray that you will forgive us of every way that we fall short. And we pray these things in your son's name.